Father in heaven, we do thank you for Jesus and for the glorious day when he came down to earth and he lived a perfect life that we could not live and he died the death that we deserve to die, paying a debt we couldn't pay so that we could have hope of eternal life, forgiveness of sin. We thank you, God, for what you've accomplished through Jesus and we pray that as we open the scriptures today, you would show us more of who Jesus is and give us a greater understanding an appreciation, and a sense of awe at what it is that he came to do when he was born as a baby so many years ago. We pray now that your spirit would help us for the glory of Christ. Amen. I want to invite you to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 2. Over the last uh, three or four weeks, we've been studying through the first two chapters of Matthew. Um, Michael Dietzel walked us through the beginning of Matthew, the genealogy, showing us that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he told us the significance of that, uh, that Jesus is the Messiah who comes to bring blessing to the nations. Uh, After that, we got to hear from uh, Stephen Parkin, who showed us the announcement of the angel to Joseph, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, that he comes to save his people from their sins. God with us and God for us. And then last week, Carrie shared with us from the visit of the wise men, Uh, who Jesus is, the Messiah, and that God has shown his glory in Christ, and he calls the nations to come and bow the knee to this Jesus. And then I get the section, chapter 12 through 23, which we'll see is a little bit different, perhaps, than some of the Christmas stories you might tell your kids around the nativity scene. You know, we usually think of Christmas as a time of goodwill towards men. We think of it as peace on earth. We, we like to enjoy the holiday spirit, right? I, I've had several people in parking lots this week actually stop and wave me across, which doesn't normally happen the rest of the year. We don't usually think of Christmas uh, as a time of sorrow, a time of mourning, a time of loss, a time of pain, but for many people it is, and that's not even so different than Years ago at the coming of Jesus, we think of Christmas as being a time for warm fires and family and gifts and singing, but we don't usually think of Christmas as an act of war. But our text this morning shows us that the first Christmas, the incarnation of Christ, the Son of God entering the world and taking on flesh, was actually an invasion that sent shockwaves through the kingdom of darkness and and drew the full force of Satan's hatred for God. God's plan to rescue his people and defeat the enemy would not be without opposition. The birth of Jesus, while good news for us, was a threat. It was a threat not only to King Herod, but even more, a threat to the forces of darkness. And because of that, there would be grief, there would be loss, there would be mourning. I'll admit that our text this morning is a very difficult text. Part of what makes our text so difficult is the subject matter. As we'll see, The slaughter of innocent children does not make for a nice Christmas story. And if Mark and Luke and John do not include this story, this heartbreaking story in their Gospels, we have to ask the question, why does Matthew include this story? What do we gain from knowing about this event? But you'll also notice as we read through our text this morning that each of the three scenes, each of the three movements in our text conclude with a reference to the Old Testament and a statement of fulfillment. We see this in verse 15, in verse 18, and in verse 23. So we have to ask, why does Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, include these references to the Old Testament scriptures? 
Because really, this story that we're going to read would make sense without these quotations. It would stand on its own simply as a narrative. You have characters, you have a crisis, you have a tragedy, you also have resolution at the end. It would read and make sense even without these quotations of the Old Testament. So what point is Matthew trying to make? Why does he want to draw our attention to these Old Testament truths, even as he recounts this event in the first century? I think if we ask these questions, it will help us to see the powerful truths that Matthew is presenting. Because Matthew, as he's done, as we've seen from our text the last several weeks, Matthew is presenting Jesus to us, telling us something about who Jesus is and something about what Jesus came to do. He is the Messiah, the son of David, the promised one. And in him, the kingdom of God has drawn near. These are powerful truths that serve to glorify Christ, but they're also truths that are meant. They are meant to encourage our hearts because we live in a broken world. We live in a world filled with suffering and a world where the enemy still rages against God and his Messiah. The first truth that emerges from this story we find in verses 12 through 15, and that's that Jesus comes to deliver those in bondage. We're going to talk about the event, but then draw our attention to the point Matthew's making. The point he's making in telling this story is that Jesus comes to deliver those in bondage. We'll start in verse 12. Remember last week we saw how the Magi had come to worship, and Herod had told them, When you find the child, come back and tell me, so I too can go and worship him. We saw that in verse 8. Well, let's pick up in verse 12. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. As as, uh, Carrie so helpfully pointed out to us last week, not everyone was excited about the birth of a new king. The Magi were not the only ones seeking Jesus. Herod had told these visitors to come report to him when they found the child. But his pretense of worship concealed a deadly agenda. He wanted to destroy the Christ, the Messiah. Why was Herod so hostile? Well, as Kerry showed us, he was a monster. He was a brutal egomaniac, yes. But I think in our text today, we need to understand that there's more going on here than just Herod's political paranoia. This evil is actually part of an ancient war against the purposes of God. I know we mention Genesis almost every week, even though we already preached through it for over a year. But that's because so much of the Bible's storyline is rooted in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, if you remember, the serpent enticed Adam and Eve to sin. And in doing so, he brought the curse of sin and death to all creation. That was a horrible day, the worst day. But God had pronounced not only curses, but also a promise of redemption. In Genesis chapter 3, 15, God says to Adam and Eve and also to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, 
Speaking, to, speaking of this future singular descendant of the woman. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Ever since those early days in the garden, there has been enmity. That word means, means hatred and hostility, a desire to do violence. Seed versus serpent. The offspring of the woman bearing God's promise against the devil and his forces. This ongoing hostility, this enmity is a dark thread that's actually woven all throughout redemptive history. And you start to see this context, this contest rather, throughout all the Old Testament. Who is going to crush who? Because Satan didn't go down without a fight. We see not long after this that the woman bears offspring, Cain and later Abel. But we see that Cain kills Abel. The offspring One of them is so corrupted by evil and wickedness, he could not possibly be God's promised deliverer. And he killed the only other offspring. Pharaoh later would enslave the growing nation of Israel and like Herod would slaughter all the male children. Balak, the king of the Moabites, would hire a pagan prophet named Balaam to curse the people of God. A man named Haman sought legal approval for genocide during the Persian Empire. He attempted to wipe out the entire descendants of Abraham, the ones through whom this promise was coming. And now we find Herod seeking to kill the one, the chosen one, the descendant of the woman, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the one that all the promises point to. The serpent is waging war against the seed. But in each and every case, if you've read the story of the Bible, you know that God intervenes. When Abel is killed, God provided Seth, another offspring, another seed. And through Seth, the promises would be preserved. When when Pharaoh enslaved the nation and sought to kill all the male children, there's a little baby named Moses whose life was spared, and he would grow to one day lead the nation to freedom. When Balaam tried to curse the nation Israel, that false prophet, all that could come out was blessing. God turned it around. When Haman built gallows for Mordecai and all the Jews, he and his sons ended up being the ones who were put to death on those very gallows because of a woman named Esther and her faithful intervention. And if you look in our text, we see that once again, God intervenes. He intervenes to thwart the plans of the enemy to destroy the seed. He intervenes to preserve his promise. Notice that while there's all these different characters, we have Joseph and Mary and the child, and we have angels and we have Herod. Notice all the actions of God. God is the initiator. He's the one whose actions control the outcome of this story. Four times we'll see in our text that God speaks to people through dreams, warning them, intervening them, and he gives them instruction telling them exactly what not to do. He tells the Magi, don't go back and tell Herod where the child is. He tells Joseph, go to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you to come back. He is sovereignly protecting Jesus and therefore, get this, preserving hope for all the world, preserving hope for us, keeping his promise alive. I love Psalm chapter two, verse one. The psalmist writes, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But the psalmist says, he who sits in the heavens 
observing all of these plots, watching them build their plans, knowing their hostility. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God scoffs at these efforts to overthrow his plans, to establish his anointed, his Messiah. It says he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see, the enemy may plot. The serpent may rage and try to crush the seed. But it's all in vain. The God who led the Magi to Jesus now guides them home another way. And Herod's plot is foiled. God also warns Joseph about Herod's plot and instructs him to flee to Egypt. They left that very night to make the 75-mile journey to the border. Actually, there is a Jewish historian named Philo who tells us that around this time, there was about one million Jews dwelling in Egypt. So perhaps they went all the way to Alexandria, which was another 100-plus miles into Egypt, to find a safe place to stay. But in any case, God spares them from Herod's plot. But we need to ask the question, why Egypt? Because God could have protected this child, the Messiah, any number of ways. There's a million ways God could have done it. But he sent him to Egypt for a reason. And Matthew tells us the reason why. In verse 15, in the middle of verse 15, he says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. See, this is very important Hosea 11, verse 1, which is what Matthew is quoting here, is a reference to another massively significant event in the history of the nation. It's a reference to the Exodus. Centuries before, God had rescued his people from slavery, setting them free from Egypt, from powerful enemy, and he had done it in a miraculous way. Unbelievable plagues that that showcased God's glory and his power over all the false gods of Egypt and over the Pharaoh of Egypt. And if we go back all the way to Exodus chapter 4, we see that the nation Israel is actually called God's son. Out of Egypt, I called my son, Hosea 11.1 says, pointing back to Exodus 4.22, God told Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. These words spoken by God, calling Israel his son. It indicates his love for his people and indicates also his commitment to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. So this language of sonship can apply to the nation, to God's chosen people. But this language of sonship was picked up later to refer not just to the nation, but also to the king that represented that nation. For instance, to David and to his descendants. In 2 Samuel 7, God says, I will raise up your offspring after you. There's that key term again, offspring. Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's why Psalm 2 refers to this king as God's son. That's why Psalm 89 does the same. That's why Hebrews chapter 1 quotes um, Psalm chapter 2 and applies it to Jesus, saying this is God's son. You see, the king of Israel would be a representative of the nation. And when Israel's kings were righteous, guess what happened to the nation? They thrived. They were blessed. But what happened when Israel's kings were wicked? The nation often suffered. 
as goes the king, so goes the nation. So this language of sonship applied to the nation, but also to the king who represents that nation. Matthew wants us to see two things here. That Jesus, number one, is the son of God. We saw that is true literally. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Matthew already told us. And therefore, he is the true king who represents his people, Israel. And Matthew will show us that Jesus will actually retrace the very history of the nation. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus would later come up from Egypt back to the promised land, just like the nation Israel did. Just as Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus would pass through the waters of baptism. And you know what the Father would declare from heaven? This is my beloved son. Just as Israel would wander in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus would be fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. But unlike Israel, Jesus will succeed where they failed. Although they often stumbled and sinned in the wilderness and later in the promised land, Jesus would resist temptation. And though they could never keep the law, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In retracing their steps, Jesus would bring salvation to Israel and lead them in a new exodus. Not out of physical slavery, but out of spiritual bondage. Matthew's telling us, listen, God is planning to save his people from a worse enemy than Egypt. As he said back in chapter 1, verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. God's instructions sovereignly guide the family of Jesus to Egypt, not just for their safety, but also to paint a picture for us, to shape the story in such a way that it fits perfectly with what God had revealed in the Old Testament and confirms who Jesus is, the King, the Son of God, who represents the nation and is preparing to lead God's people out of bondage in a new Exodus. So Jesus comes, number one, to deliver those who are in bondage. But a second truth emerges. Number two, Jesus also comes to bring hope to those in mourning. Look with me in verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So when Herod figures out what has happened, that his plans have been thwarted, he goes from troubled, like we saw back in verse 3, to furious, according to verse 16. And in his wrath, he utters a wicked and evil command. Kill all the male children. Everyone two years old and under. He did the, the rough, simple math and figured out how long it would have taken the Magi to travel all the way to Israel and said, anyone that's two years old and under who's a male is to be put to death. Keep in mind here that there is more at work than simply Herod's anger. Remember that the serpent is trying to crush the seed. John 8, tells us that Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And he does not want those in spiritual darkness to be liberated. Just like Pharaoh of old, he doesn't want to see his kingdom gutted. He doesn't want to lose those who are imprisoned. 
So all his rage is targeted at Jesus because Jesus is the one who comes to lead these people in this new exodus to bring them salvation. Now, Bethlehem was a very small town. It might be tempting for us to over-exaggerate the, the number of people who were killed, but the number of male children in this age group was likely not in the thousands or even in the hundreds. It was likely in the dozens. But that does not minimize how much of a heartbreaking tragedy this was. Those of you who are mothers or fathers, or older siblings, consider having to have this kind of a funeral because the king of your region, this ruler Herod, this wicked man, had pronounced this decree. It's a heartbreaking tragedy, unspeakable evil, motivated by hatred for the Messiah, and it brought agonizing grief and suffering to the families in and around Bethlehem. Matthew connects this tragic event to another tragic event in Israel's history. And we see this in verse 18 as he quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, which is where this quote comes from, the prophet describes Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel was one of the matriarchs of Israel, one of Jacob's wives. It was partially through her descendants that this nation had come into being. And Rachel, if you remember our series through Genesis, had died in childbirth and had been buried. But she wasn't buried in the family tomb, that cave at Machpelah that Abraham had purchased. No, they were on the road. They were traveling when, when Rachel had died. And so she was buried at this place called Ramah, which was near Bethlehem. So keep in mind that one of the matriarchs of Israel was buried near Bethlehem. And in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah is talking about the Babylonian captivity. Because Israel's kings had been so wicked, because there had been so many years of idolatry and immorality, God had told Israel that they were going to go into captivity. The Babylonian empire came in, destroyed Jerusalem, and took everyone captive, and, and took most of the nation into exile, into another country. And Jeremiah describes Rachel personifying the nation her grave was being literally marched by as all these people were being ripped away from their homes. Rachel weeping, grieving for her children because they are no more. Those who weren't killed in the battle were taken away and deported. Matthew uses this historical moment of national grief from centuries before to describe the scene of mourning here in Bethlehem. Rachel weeping for her children. But that quotation from Jeremiah also comes with a promise of hope. In Jeremiah 31, verse 10, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from hands too strong for him. In verse 13, he says, I will turn their mourning to joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Jeremiah 31 goes on to record for us the abundant promises of the new covenant that not only would God rescue his people from exile, bring them back from Babylon into the land, but he would restore them, restore them in a spiritual sense. He would fix the problem that led to exile. He would deal with their sin. He would forgive them and put a new heart within them and he promised that he would be their God and they would be his people. Jeremiah 31 tells us of deep mourning and grief and sorrow, but it also promises us that Israel's collective mourning can be turned into joy. 
and that there is comfort coming for those who are in sorrow. How? How could comfort come to those who sorrow? Through the promised redemption that comes through Jesus. Though there is mourning and sadness, although the enemy may rage and attack, although it may look like all is lost and we could never recover from such heartbreak, joy is coming. Jesus comes to initiate this new covenant by the shedding of his blood. He comes to bring us forgiveness, to bring us redemption, to restore us to God and to remove the sting of death. He comes to bring salvation to Israel and through Israel to all the world. Isaiah 49 verse 6 says this, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. God's plan is to bring through his Messiah joy, comfort, restoration for people throughout the ends of the earth. And friends, this is where it gets pretty real for us. And I want to speak to you a moment about this. Outside of Christ, there is no true and lasting comfort. Outside of Christ, there is no lasting hope. Not for your suffering, not for your sorrow, not for your sadness. There is no real answer for mourning or loss or death or tragedy or sin or shame or guilt outside of Christ. And the world would attempt to deal with mourning and sadness and guilt and suffering by forgetting and moving on. Suppressing those things that we've had to endure. Perhaps pretending like they never happened. But you know and I know that this is not real healing. The world may seek to distract from the pain. You can entertain yourself and amuse yourself to death. If you watch enough Netflix, maybe you'll forget about how difficult everything is. The world may attempt to medicate that pain. If I drink enough, perhaps my sense of loneliness and emptiness and regret will perhaps be numbed. But that's a temporary band-aid. We know this. We've tried these things. and They haven't worked. Only Jesus can bring true healing, real comfort, lasting joy, and hope to those who are mourning. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, weeping may tarry for the night. Christianity does not, does not deny the reality of sorrow, but joy comes with the mourning. Friends, Jesus is the comfort we need. Jesus brings hope, but we have to wonder, how can he do this? How can he meet our needs? How can he solve these problems? How could he possibly overcome such tragedy and suffering? Well, the next section, I think, points us to the answer. We've seen that Jesus comes to deliver those in bondage. Jesus comes to bring hope to those in mourning. And then finally, Jesus comes to end our suffering by suffering. He comes to end our suffering by suffering. Verse 19, but when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee." 
And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Heeding the angel's command, as Joseph has a track record of doing, Joseph obeyed. He took his family and returned to Israel from Egypt, but they don't end up back in Bethlehem. Matthew tells us that Herod's son, Archelaus, was reigning in his place, and he was no better than his father. Just as brutal, just as wicked, he slaughtered thousands of people. And actually, Rome ended up um, deposing him and putting somebody else in his place because he was too wicked and cruel. So they don't go back to Bethlehem. Instead, they go to a small backwoods town in Galilee called Nazareth. And Matthew says that this fulfills what was spoken by, in verse 23, the prophets. Notice he says this time, the prophets, plural. But if you look in your cross-references in your Bible and you look for all the references in the Old Testament that speak about Nazareth, you won't find any. Because nowhere does the Old Testament actually mention Nazareth. So we have to say, what is Matthew meaning here? That the prophets, that what the prophets said is being fulfilled in Jesus being called a Nazarene. Well, in order to see his point, we have to understand that being from Nazareth literally meant being from the wrong side of the tracks. It was a town with a negative reputation. They were poor, uneducated, and generally despised by everyone. In John's gospel, Nathaniel wonders out loud when he hears that Jesus was from Nazareth. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that really represented the attitude of the people towards anybody that was from that place. Despised and rejected. But while some would use his hometown as a reason to reject Jesus, and we see that in the Gospels, Matthew holds this up as proof that he truly is the Messiah. Because consider what the prophets do say about people's attitude towards the true Messiah. Isaiah 53, that beautiful and familiar passage says that he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. It applies to Jesus, doesn't it? Despised and rejected by men. Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm speaking in the future of who Jesus would be and what he would experience, says in the first person, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Jesus would be despised and rejected. And this fulfills what the Old Testament said would happen to the Messiah. So to go back to our question, how would Jesus bring his people out of exile? How would he accomplish this new exodus? How can he possibly restore hope and overcome sin and overcome suffering? He would do so by his own suffering. Jesus represented his people, you see, not only in life, but also in death. His rejection and subsequent suffering on the cross would be the very means by which Jesus would bring salvation to the world. You see, the war of the serpent against the seed, it didn't end in Bethlehem. Satan didn't give up after Herod's plans failed. We see right after this that Satan would go on to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus refused. And it says that in Luke's gospel that Satan departed waiting for a more opportune time to come against him. 
But eventually Satan saw what he thought was his chance. And as Jesus prepared for his final Passover, Luke says this in Luke 22 verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Judas despised Jesus. He rejected Jesus. He betrayed Jesus. And Luke tells us that that was a satanic thing. When Judas later led this mob of soldiers with pitchforks and torches to arrest Jesus in the garden, Jesus says in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. The power of of darkness. It almost appears as if Jesus has failed. It almost appears that Satan has won, that Jesus came into his own, but his own did not receive him, that he was a prophet, but he wasn't even welcome in his hometown, that light shined in the world, but men loved darkness rather than light, and now Satan, that ancient serpent, moved, Jews, moved Judas to betray Jesus to death. Satan had failed so many times before to snuff out the seed, to put out the light, but now darkness seemed to have the upper hand, and it appeared that Jesus had lost, despised, rejected. The Nazarene who claimed to to be Messiah was now on his way to the cross to die in shame. Rejected, betrayed, mocked, and crucified, the king of glory stripped naked and murdered outside the city gates. You see, the war that started in Genesis, this enmity between the seed and the serpent, this war would climax at the cross. But little did the enemy realize that this was exactly what Jesus came to do. In suffering, Jesus seized the victory. The serpent would bruise his heel, but he would crush his head. There were mutual blows delivered that day, like boxers that both connect on a right hook at the same time. They both landed their strongest blow. But one blow merely caused a temporary wound. Another blow would prove to be mortal. I love Colossians 2, starting in verse 14. It says that God has extended forgiveness to us by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15 tells us, he, that is God, disarmed the rulers and authorities. This is speaking of spiritual powers of darkness. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. How? By triumphing over them in him. Triumphing over them, the powers of darkness, in Jesus Christ, the crucified Son of God. This was the victorious blow against the serpent. Jesus would triumph over sin by bearing sin. He would overcome death by dying. He would swallow up sorrow by suffering it. He would undo the curse By becoming a curse. He would receive glory by enduring shame. He would be exalted above all else because he emptied himself. 
and became as nothing. He would ascend to the throne by way of the grave and establish his kingdom by becoming a servant. It's all backwards and upside down to those who don't have eyes to see. But this is God's glorious plan. To rescue us from sorrow and suffering and death. Through sorrow and suffering and death. John 1.5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus was despised, rejected, and ultimately killed. But in his humility and suffering, Jesus would accomplish salvation for all who believe. And then death itself would be undone as Jesus rose from the grave. And listen, listen to this. This Jesus, this triumphant Savior, this suffering Messiah, now invites you and me to share in this victory through faith. He invites us out of bondage. He invites us out of exile into freedom and forgiveness and life if we will repent of our sins and receive him by faith. We ask some important questions at the beginning. Why this story? It's an awful story. And why these quotations that are a little bit confusing to figure out? Well, hopefully by now the answers are beginning to be clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament to bring salvation to his people and through them to the world. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who represents and rescues his people despite the power of sin, despite the forces of evil, despite Satan, even despite death. And we are led by Christ out of exile, out of bondage, into freedom and joy. This means that we can take away a few things this morning. Number one, I want to encourage you, as you deal with sorrow, perhaps this Christmas, as you suffer, as you perhaps even experience the opposition of the enemy, rejoice, because we have real hope in Jesus. Not the shallow kind that wears off. Not the temporary kind that can be lost. Not the fragile kind that can erode or be destroyed we have a sure hope in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the sure triumph of the king. We know how this story ends. We know that God wins. The mortal wound has been dealt and Jesus has overcome and we who trust in Christ share in his victory. We're part of his church. Jesus would say later in Matthew, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We get to be part of that in the church. We get to be part of Christ's victorious mission of building his church. Not only do we get to be part of the church, we have a share in the kingdom that is coming. We know how the story ends, and we get to be on Jesus's team when the final battle happens. I love how Paul encourages the believers in Rome at the end of Romans. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We have real hope in Christ. Hope that is sure. An anchor for the soul, as Hebrews puts it. So no matter what we're going through, no matter what we suffer, no matter what we lose, we know that Christ has overcome and he is ours through faith. And this means, secondly, not only do we have real hope, we also have true comfort. And this comfort is a person. He is our comfort. He sends his spirit to dwell within us and calls him the comforter. The one who saves us by his suffering now alleviates our suffering through his love and his presence and his promise. We know that our guilt and shame has been nailed to the cross. 
Because of Christ, we can look forward to resurrection life in a new heaven and a new earth. We know that all things will one day be put right and our king will reign in power. For those who have embraced Jesus Christ through faith, hope and comfort are ours through Christ. So let me ask you, have you received Jesus as your king? Because there's really two categories. There's those who bow the knee to Christ, and there's those who persist in going their own way. And those who persist in unbelief do not have hope, do not have comfort. They are still in bondage, still trapped in a spiritual exile without hope for the future. Will you receive Jesus as your king? Will you seek comfort in him? Not seeking comfort in in pleasures of this world. Not seeking comfort in all the money and the security we can prop up for ourselves. Not seeking comfort in human relationships that are prone to failure and disappointment. Will you seek comfort in Christ and in his promises? And will you trust in his work on the cross for your salvation? And by faith, share in his victory. You know, our text is one this morning that's filled with hostility and horror, but it's also one that reveals to us the powerful providence of our faithful God. So as we continue to live in a world that is haunted by violence, a world that is wrecked by evil, a world drenched with sorrow and burdened with suffering, we need to be reminded this morning of the sovereignty of our God and the victory of our King, Jesus Christ. The answer to our sorrow and suffering, the solution to our sin, and the key to overcoming Satan, it will not be found in sentimental feelings about chestnuts roasting on an open fire. You can try, but you won't find lasting hope there. It is only through faith in God's promise of salvation through Christ. Christmas, although difficult for many, can be a time of peace and joy and comfort and rest, even for those who live in a world marred by the curse. Because we know from the scriptures that those who look to Christ are delivered from bondage, rescued from the darkness, comforted in our sorrow and given hope of eternal life through the death and resurrection of our King, our Savior, Jesus. God, we give you praise and glory this morning because of the marvelous victory you have accomplished through your Son, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. God, comfort those who are in mourning today. Give healing to those who are broken, who are suffering. Give freedom to those who are trapped in sin and enslaved to their desires. Give restoration to those who are far off from you alienated because of their disobedience and their unbelief. I pray that you would bring sinners to salvation, that you would draw wandering sheep back into the fold, and that you would glorify your son by building his church. God, for those of us who know you, give us a strong faith this morning not to fear. Though the enemy may rage, though he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, we can resist him, firm in our faith, We know that Jesus wins, and we know that we are on his team. We give you praise and glory, God, for what you have accomplished through Christ. Keep our eyes fixed on him this Christmas, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.